Hyvä iltapäivä, hyvät naiset ja herrat. On suuri kunnia olla puhumassa täällä. And that is all the Finnish I'm going to try today. So, um, but I, I promise to keep learning and studying. Um, Um, so my area is virtual reality, and um, I want you to first imagine this technology. So you have a kind of display that you bring up to your face, and there are some lenses that bring some kind of virtual world into focus. It could be purely graphical, or it could be captured by cameras in some way. And then um, as you turn your head, the viewpoint of this world is supposed to be changing. So this is accomplished by advanced sensing technology that keeps track of where your head is moving. It uses some kind of sensor fusion algorithms, and as you turn your head, it changes your viewpoint in this virtual world, and it gives you a sense that you're there. So as your head rotates, the viewpoint changes, and even in some of the technologies, as you walk around and move your head throughout the space, it continues to project images to your eyes that convince you that you're perhaps somewhere else, in a fantasy land or in some other maybe real place in a different time or a different location. So what is virtual reality? A simple short definition is using technology to design, develop, and deliver perceptual experiences that tightly integrate with the human senses. A longer, more technical-sounding definition is to induce targeted interactive behavior in an organism, and by organism, maybe we mean humans, maybe we mean some other animals, using artificial sensory stimulation. This is produced by engineering such that um, the organism has little or no awareness of this interference, or the organism may tend to forget and, and just believe in this kind of fantasy that's created. So it's a kind of perceptual illusion that's happening, and that's being maintained through some kind of engineering processes. So by using the word organism, I want to point out that scientists have in fact applied this technology to, to, um, to many different kinds of animals, even fruit flies, uh, mice, and uh, in this one particular example I show here, it's been used by some scientists, neuroscientists in fact, to understand um, what kind of neural cell structures form, neural structures form as a mouse uh, explores a maze, to try to understand what place cells and grid cells are, are actually generated in that. So it's actually fooling their brains, and I just want to point that out because we are no different in some sense when we use this technology. It's fooling our brains in the same kind of um, sort of direct, measurable way. So that's, that's the one where I was talking about the, 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 just now, the um, applying it to um, mice in labs. I think it's helpful to try to have a historical perspective here. So if you think back, what would be the beginnings of virtual reality? <clears throat> well, you can imagine the imagery that might be generated from cave paintings tens of thousands of years ago. And you might wonder, okay, that seems to be some kind of virtual world. And then as the technology improves, um, you have something like this. This looks like a kind of world you might be able to step directly into. And this involves understanding of a perspective and how to use the paints in a very special way, so forth and so on. It's a better technology, but it's just a simple, well, simple in some sense painting. I certainly couldn't generate such a painting myself with all the technology we have now. But it just points out that this seems a little more advanced, but again, it seems to be making another kind of reality. I also wonder about written uh, form as well of communication. So what if you have, uh, it, could be, it could be Homer's Odyssey, it could be Kalevala. But um, the power of storytelling and the kind of imagined worlds that come out of that. So maybe this, this concept is not necessarily limited only to imagery that comes directly to the senses in a very low-level direct form, but we might think it extends very, very broadly. Returning, though, to imagery, um, let's think about motion pictures. So at some point, our brains accept this perceptual illusion that when you're presented a sequence of images very rapidly, we believe that some kind of motion is occurring. You go to the movie theater, and you might sort of feel like you're there. You feel immersed in the film. 
even in some sort of what looks comical kind of television in, in the 1950s. It was very compelling. A family could sit around and, and watch this and feel like they're in another world. There was a, a landmark step that was made in the 1960s when Ivan Sutherland had the idea of the ultimate display, which was to have the display follow the head around and again generate or change the viewpoint which way you're looking based on some kind of sensing technology. Um, this contraption was called the Sword of Damocles because it was probably not very comfortable. So 50 years later, you have things like this, um, and this was the kind of revolution that was kicked off by the company that, as was mentioned in the introduction, I was an early founder of called Oculus VR, where thanks to the smartphone industry, the technology components got light enough, affordable enough, powerful enough, that if you scramble them around in a different way, um, you end up with a, a very low cost, uh, portable in some cases, device. And they continue to improve. When um, Facebook bought our company for three billion US dollars, um, it stimulated massive interest in all of the industries in this technology, and that was in 2014. Um, there's a nice local story to this as well. Um, we actually did our early Oculus work together with my wife, Anna Laval, who's here and a senior lecturer as well at the university. And we did this um, secretly when the company was about one month old. It was founded by a 19-year-old named Palmer Lucky in California, but we got involved very early from an apartment in Olu in Apolivadencangas. We had a robot and a sensor, and we did some of the early head tracking development there secretly. And if you look at the last picture, um, that's actually me <clears throat> in California working for Oculus, and I'm secretly wearing a University of Olu t-shirt there. And, and, that, and that was one of the uh, marketing uh, pictures that they took. So, so when I was in Olu, I was secretly doing work and about to move to California. When I was in California, I was secretly wishing I was back in Olu. So, so I finally made it, which makes me happy. So what is this technology good for? Many people think it's some kind of video game thing. And certainly there are people interested in making some game-like experiences inside of virtual reality. But it's important to remember that it has many other uh, professional kinds of use cases that, that are beyond entertainment. For example, in healthcare, it can enable uh, surgeons to, um, to plan for a procedure or to, uh, have to, or to contribute towards education, uh, training people, try to understand um, how a particular surgery might be carried out, even to explain to the patient. This is very helpful for a kind of three-dimensional visualization. Even the patient may want to wear a headset. Um, this patient does not look too lucky in that picture, but uh, they might want to wear these devices to imagine they are somewhere else. Uh, maybe while getting an MRI scan, or maybe you might wear these devices just for simple kind of therapy. You may want to have some kind of relaxation experience. Imagine you're off in the Lapland forest, perhaps, uh, for, for certain periods of the day as a, as a kind of relaxing and uh, health-improving experience. So th that's one kind of uh, use case that you might not have thought of. Another one is in communicating designs. So imagine when you design something. Perhaps it's a house or a building. Maybe you're doing urban city planning. Um, maybe you're in a big engineering company designing an aircraft. In all these kinds of cases, you can communicate the design directly from inside the space where it would be in some sense. You can show the full three-dimensional representation and communicate that to people directly. Um, in fact, this example, it's so good that I have a hard time telling which one's reality and which one's the virtual version, but you get that idea. So you can construct something without having to construct it. And that, that saves a lot of time and money and effort. So it's very helpful in, in revolutionizing design. A very important part is connecting people together, socializing or communicating in some kind of way. Certainly Finland has a very long history of advanced telecommunications and this fits very naturally into that. We could all be here together in some kind of virtual form. Maybe we put on certain uh, avatars to represent ourselves and we all come together to, to a kind of virtual lecture like this, a real lecture, but somehow we're virtually together and we tend to believe that. That leads to many fascinating issues and questions. 
Like for example, um, you may have a different representation of yourself. You may have a different perceived size, race, gender, age, many things, and you can learn a lot about how people interact in that way and how people perceive us. Maybe it may cause people to, to appreciate diversity perhaps in, in some way too by understanding that. And back to storytelling again, you can have fully immersive panoramic storytelling where you feel like you're there. This example is a, is a video that was <clears throat> made for the United Nations that follows a girl named Sidra around through a Syrian refugee camp to try to build empathy for the situation there. Um, so what kind of problems do we have and what, how does the university fit in? Well, when we have this technology, in industry it's very challenging because people are recycling. They work on very short-term horizons, otherwise the company might die if you spend five years going down a long, difficult path. And so they tend to just change what they already know a little bit. A game company might just adapt their game to work in VR. A hardware company that makes graphics, graphical processing units, they would just want to change it to work for VR. Uh, so forth and so on through the software and many other aspects. So this is very challenging for them and one of the biggest problems for them is the human perception and, and physiology side. That's very hard for these mainly engineering and some art kinds of companies or content companies to, to, to worry about and, and take in a, in, a, in, a, in a serious and difficult way. So in understanding human physiology and perception, it's very difficult to work with this because these processes are mostly invisible to us. Our, our eyes take in light and our brains perceive things. We recognize the people around us. We can go navigating about with very little trouble. It seems invisible to us. And yet to develop this technology, you have to look at it very closely. I sort of wonder sometimes in developing this technology, am I the scientist or the laboratory rat? Because I'm wearing the device and I'm trying to make some reasoning about it. It's important to have other human subjects and to design your experiments very carefully. In some sense, as, as an engineering person, mainly from my training, I like to think that these challenges we face are reverse engineering because we did not design ourselves. So we have to understand the human body in terms of perception and physiology, even though we did not design it. And that's the, I feel like that's the struggle that, um, that psychologists and neuroscientists face all the time. But nevertheless, we have to reverse engineer that part to figure out how to build these engineering systems, to understand how the photoreceptors are working and how they're outlaid in the, in the human eye, um, the, how the retina works, and, and, and how the neural structures going all the way back um, into the brain work. These have become very important for us. Um, just to kind of give you a feeling for how difficult it is, this is a perfectly aligned grid. It's straight in horizontal and vertical directions, but it might look curved to you. So if you're generating this kind of technology with displays and things, you may be generating all kinds of strange, unpredictable side effects. This one, if it looks, does it look like it's moving to anyone? Yeah, so if it looks like it's moving, it's very strange. There's no motion in that picture. So they're very strange kind of illusions. And if you're not careful in the engineering of these things, these weren't made by engineers. They were mainly studied by vision scientists for human vision. But, but these kind of things just illustrate how difficult it is to get a handle on our own everyday functions of our vision. So that's what leads to these kind of perceptual problems in virtual reality. And there's, there's too much emphasis on the pure engineering. And, and often people are naive about the impact on the human body. So when there's fatigue or, or nausea, other forms of sickness come out, it's very difficult to understand why and try to eliminate that. And that's something we, we focus on and try to understand. People adapt, and there's huge amount of variation across people. It may be based on their, it could be based sometimes on just simple things like age or gender, but often it's based on the amount of experience they've had with the technology. And some of them may have serious side effects or may not based on some of these kinds of factors. Very difficult to, 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 to understand these things. Um, so for example, one of the challenges 
that in the real world, if you see something that's stationary, some object that's not supposed to be moving, you move your head around, you look at it, it remains fixed in one place. To do this with a screen that's strapped to your face is very hard because many, many factors, I won't describe them all in detail, but many factors are contributing in some way that might make the object appear to your eyes to be wobbling or moving around in some way. So just perceiving something as stationary is extremely challenging. And if it's not right, your brain might have to do too much work to accept this illusion. And then, uh, well, some headaches or sickness or other things could come out of that. And that's just one of the simplest things, just make something seem like it's stationary. The next thing that happens is people tend to want to move their bodies in virtual reality, even though in real reality, they're, they're just sitting in one place. If you do that by grabbing a controller, like maybe a device like I'm holding in my hand, and you try to move yourself around in virtual reality, um, the problem is that your vestibular organ will know that you're not moving. The vestibular organ measures the accelerations of motion but your eyes will tell you that you're moving because of the virtual reality device. Have you ever been in a train and the train is stationary, but then a train next to you starts moving forward and then you feel like you're going backwards for a minute? That's called vection. And with this technology, you can force someone to have that experience over and over and over again until they get sick, if you're not careful. So these are the kind of challenges that people get into. They just naively walk into this kind of trouble. And we have to figure out how to mitigate or reduce the, the side effects of this or maybe eliminate that. There's also problems of having enough pixels in a display. The density needs to be higher and higher, about four times higher than it currently is in order to be very effective and, and so that people do not actually see the pixels. And this matches in some unusual and difficult way to understand with the photoreceptors, the layout of the, eye, the, the eye's sensors, let's say, the eye's natural sensors. So how much resolution is enough? You need very much. Um, 60 pixels per degree is what people normally say. There's a company in Helsinki called Vario, which has made a headset that has achieved that, at least in some narrow region, and it's, it's very impressive to see. So we don't want to see sort of pixels. Um, just like in the early days of computers when you could see the pixels you know, very clearly, now you don't see them anymore on your smartphones. So same kind of problem. Um, there's many more challenges, but um, um, it goes on and on, and advanced display technology is needed to improve all of these. And there's a lot of research, very interesting research, going, around, going on around Finland in, um, in photonics that is addressing some of this. But I need to finish up a bit here. So one image I want to leave you with in, in understanding is that um, I believe a new discipline is emerging called perception engineering. Just as physics, the science, over, over centuries, has been adapted and applied into civil engineering, mechanical engineering, electrical engineering to solve real world problems. Same for chemistry and biology. I believe that this subject involves the science of perception and neuroscience being applied and adapted into perception engineering. We are engineering a perceptual illusion. And that's, I feel like, the right way to think about that. That's what's being engineered. And we use all of our tools together to generate that. We have a new laboratory, Perception Engineering Lab, um, that, that I'm directing together with Professor Timo Oyela. And um, it's, it's working on these kinds of things as I've presented. And I also have a free virtual reality book you're welcome to, to look at. I strongly believe that, uh, that professors at public universities should be giving away their books and educational materials to help the whole world. Thank you.